So we have a video of pretty much every baptism we have done online. I'd encourage you to check those out. And certainly if you're ready to take that next step with Jesus, uh, do it. It's a great uh, opportunity for you to publicly show the world your love uh, for Christ. And that's what we deeply encourage here <clears throat> each and every week. So with that said, let's jump into the, uh, the remainder, if you will, of our Nehemiah series. And I want to open by uttering a statement. I do not have joy in my life. I don't have joy in my life. Now, if we're being honest, that phrase has probably come out of our mouths more often than we prefer to. And maybe you have come into this place right now, not verbally declaring it, but in the depths of your soul, you're saying it. And while no one ever wants to be at this place in life, uh, I want to kind of, in in a very kind of dogmatic way, say that it is a very big problem when a Christian says this. Because Jesus clearly promises for those that have come to trust him, for those of us that have professed our faith in him, for those of us that love him, he says, listen, there are many things that I give you, but what we just read in John 16 is that one of the things he gives us is this unrivaled hope, peace, and joy that cannot be taken away or lost. That's the promise he's made us. Yet despite that promise, lots of people let the circumstances of their lives rob them of this joy. And the reason this is so, at least in my opinion, is because I think a lot of people have a very confused understanding of what joy actually is, uh, what Christian joy is. Now, we might almost qualify the word. Uh, I think when we say joy in our modern culture, we tend to think that this means personal satisfaction or uh, unbridled happiness, like a, a bubbling kind of personality. I'm not saying these things cannot be the byproduct of a joyful life, but I am saying that's only a partial truth. Those, those emotions are not necessarily what the deep-seated uh, root of joy is. You might almost say they're half of the equation. And it is true. I think we can confidently say that God desires us to be joyful in life. He desires us to be satisfied and even happy in life. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes. Jesus qualifies, like, what should make us happy in life? This is the part of the equation that most of us as Christians will agree on. We will say that God says he wants us to be happy. However, that part of the equation that we have a harder time swallowing is often the object of what that happiness or joy is. It's not that we don't think God wants us to be joyful. It's just that sometimes we have a a disagreement with him in what we're actually looking to find our joy in, what the ultimate source of our joy is. That's the side of the joy equation that can get fuzzy for us. And that's why we're going to attempt to clear it up today. Now, today we're looking at two sets of verses that have just been read to you, Nehemiah 12, in John chapter 16, and both are talking about finding joy uh, during hard times. And you've probably noticed there's been a theme in the way we've handled Nehemiah. We've looked at these Old Testament attitudes. We see what's going on with the people of Israel in Jerusalem, and then we're marrying them immediately to New Testament teachings, because I want us to see, perhaps more than anything in this series, that what is happening in the Old Testament people of God it's not only available to us today, but it's perhaps more available to us today. When we start reading, we read about joy in the Old Testament, but then we read about the great promise of it, that it cannot be taken away from Jesus in the New Testament. So there's kind of a system in the way we're looking at the Old and the New Testament. And today it'll be Nehemiah and John. And so if you're here today saying, I know God says I should be joyful. I know he says that, but the straight up truth is that I'm not. I want you to pay close attention to this. Because I do believe Jesus wants to deal with that. I think he wants you to leave here being challenged in the fact that you can have joy even if you don't believe you can right now. And I think our talk today is going to remind us that having a a life marked by deep satisfaction or joy was never meant to be something we dabble in. It wasn't meant to be like kind of what we do in life. Joy is the normative attitude of our hearts that Jesus says we should have if we're following him. It's the normal way we're meant to live, not the exception to the rule. And we can say this confidently because of this promise that he gives us. When our hearts are troubled, right, we see in Nehemiah 12, and we'll talk about why in a minute, 
Hearts are troubled, yet there is great joy. John 16, the disciples' hearts are troubled, yet there is great joy. Today, or there will be great joy. Today we're going to see if you want to experience lasting joy. This is your question. How do, I, how do I move from that statement, I don't have joy, to actually saying I want joy and I'd like to experience it in a lasting way? How do we do that? Well, then you have to do what we say with most, most kinds of attitudes of the heart. You have to regularly search your heart and ask God if you're looking for joy in the right place. This is another one of those talks where we'll have an opportunity to run a self-diagnostic with the help of the Holy Spirit, Lord willing, to look at who we are and are not, where our hearts are with God. This is important to do because people almost always look to find joy in the shifting sands of their life circumstances. They look to the periphery to find happiness in life. And I'm not saying that we can't find happiness in the periphery. I'm not saying that we shouldn't want to derive joy from our friends and our marriages and our children, our vocation. That's all good stuff. But as is true with all idols, when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a problem. What we want to talk about today is what happens when we look to the periphery, not to Jesus himself, to be our longest lasting joy in life. That can't be the case, or at least it can't, we can't find joy that way, true joy. Because Jesus says it's only when we seek our joy in him and learn to rest in his unchanging promises, his gospel, that our heart will find that satisfaction that it's looking for. And this is what we see explicitly happening in Nehemiah. And two weeks ago, kind of story up since I was out last week. Two weeks ago, Lars taught us from chapter 11 that some of God's people, after they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, you know, they were building the walls, there were people who were living very comfortable lives on the outskirt of the mission of God, essentially. They were in the suburban areas of Jerusalem. And God had called them. Some went voluntarily, some were picked, but there was this movement of people that left a comfortable life on the outskirts of a devastated city They moved into that city to embrace the mission of God. In other words, they disadvantaged self to move God's kingdom forward. And this was not an easy thing to do. While today, you know, the the premise of of the chapter we're looking at today is that people are rejoicing. They're busted out in straight-up worship. We'll get to that next week, right? Amazing things are happening right now. This is not necessarily a, a thing that they should be rejoicing over. They're happy that the walls are completed, but the truth of their situation still is that the city, their residences, the, the kind of life of what life looked like in that city was completely still in shambles. It was a very hard place to live at at the time. They're happy because the wall is up, but their lives are still utterly uprooted. This was not the kind of move you'd Instagram to your friends to show them your new home. It was probably a bit embarrassing. So we have this kind of hard edge. They've given up much. They've sacrificed much. There's this hard and sacrificial move that God's people make. They're in less than ideal life circumstances that really don't merit joy from the outside looking in. Yet we find that they are extremely joyful. It's an unbridled joy. So much so that they're loving God more than ever in what is rightly identified as a hard situation. That is the attitude I want to look at today. We're going to look at this reality in Nehemiah in light of what we read in John 16. Something interesting. There you have, it's, it might be a different circumstance, right? But nonetheless, you have, you have a hard time that the disciples are facing. And unlike God's people in the Old Testament, they are without joy. Jesus is having to say, listen, I know where this is going. I know you feel like you're going to lose your joy. You probably already have. But I want to I tell you some things that you need to know. So two people, two different sets of hardships. One finds joy and the other lose it. That's what we're going to talk about today. And if you want the summation, if you hear anything today about, about joy and how we find it and how we stay in it, how we, how we refind our joy, if you will, if it's been lost. It's, it comes down to this simple statement. To have true joy the way Jesus prescribes it, we have got to be less focused on the circumstances of life. We've got to stop dwelling on those, and we have to start focusing on who Christ is in our lives. 
It's a matter of focusing on the promises of Jesus, not the circumstances of life. One is fixed and eternal, the promise of Jesus. One is never going to be fixed and will seldom, if ever, be permanent. Circumstances change on a daily basis. And this leads me to the first truth that I want to talk to you about today. That will put you, or for those of you who are blessed by God right now in this room and are experiencing joy, consider this sermon uh, a talk about how we stay on the road to joy that God wants us to live on. First thing I want to share with you. If you've got Jesus in your life, God promises you'll have joy in your heart, no matter how bad life appears, no matter how it looks, or no matter how it feels. If you've got Jesus in your life, then, then God promises you can have joy in your heart. And I want to reread just an excerpt from John 16, 20 through 21. Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but, when you're, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, what we kind of can derive from these verses is something very powerful. That exhibiting joy through hardship is one of the clearest marks of a person who has a genuine relationship with Jesus. In the Old Testament, we would say somebody who is devoutly in love with and pursuing their God. This is one of the distinctions of the Christian is that if we will permit God to work in our lives, we can have the same amount of joy at the top of the mountain of life as we do in the valley. Now, to be clear, Nehemiah and Jesus, neither one of them are saying that that to believe God or in God or to follow God or to embrace the promises of God in your life, they're not saying that when you do this, you get a a robotic ability, or I like to call it a joy light, light switch. You don't get a switch that when days get bad, you flip the switch and you say, God, I feel like I'm without joy today. And then five minutes later, you know, manna joy from heaven comes down and makes you joyful. That's not necessarily what either one of these people are saying. There's a bit of a process that both go through to find joy. So I, I don't want you to think that I'm being naive here when we speak about reclaiming joy. It is not a light switch. However, both Nehemiah and Jesus do tell us that the more you grow to trust in God's promises of joy, The more you dwell on the reality that Jesus says your life can be, as opposed to the perceived reality of what life feels like, the more you can grow in your ability to apply that promise to your life when things do get hard. Now, we've already identified the particular hardship that God's people are dealing with in the Old Testament. They've uprooted their lives to pursue the mission to build the city of Jerusalem, the city that Jesus will be presented to the world in, the city that basically raises the the young man who will die for our sins, right? This, This is a mission that precedes the great mission. That's the problem in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we're on the back end of the story. Here, we're kind of prophesying, if you will, about the life of Jesus. Here, in the New Testament, we're on the tail end of the physical life of Jesus. The particular hardship the disciples are facing right now is that to Jesus, whom they love, they have been discipled by him. They have lived life with him for over three years. They have succeeded and failed. He has invested in them, and they have cared for him. They have an incredibly robust relationship with Jesus Christ. And right now, they find out that he is about to be taken away from him. He's about to be crucified. The end of Jesus' days are here. That's where we're at in John. And coupled with this, they learn that after his death, the full force of the persecution that Jesus was taking for them at that moment was now going to be directed towards them. It was no longer find and crucify the Christ. Once that happened, it was now let's find and crucify those who follow him. So this is a double whammy of hardship for them. They lose the man they love, or at least on the verge of it, and they recognize their lives are going to be utterly changed forever. And so that's why Jesus says, it's what he means when he says, hey, the world is going to rejoice, meaning his death. Some people are going to be very happy about the fact that I am no longer with you. And he says to them, hey, and you guys are going to weep 
and mourn over this. He identifies the situation. But then in verse 20, Jesus does what he does best. He identifies the problem, but he never leaves us there. He begins to saturate them with the truths of grace. In verse 20, he responds to the disciples' troubled hearts by refocusing them on the promise of his joy. He doesn't just end at grief. He reminds them of what grief turns into if they will permit him to work in their lives. And so paraphrasing, he says this. Listen, guys, this is going to be a rough time in your life, and you are going to grieve greatly because of my death. But if you love me and keep your hearts fixed on my promises, I will take the worst grief, pain, suffering, and trials that the world will throw at you, and I promise that I will lead you to my endless well of joy through them. That's what he tells them in these verses. That's what we see happening in the Old Testament. He promises to turn their grief into joy. And I can't imagine that any of us that have struggled with grief, that maybe are grieving now, or if we're preparing for trials in the future, that's one of the things we'll point out. Trial and hardship is a commonplace in life, so no matter where you're at in this spectrum, Jesus' words have a past, present, or future application. If we want to live in this promise, which I hope we all do, then we've got to understand the two parts of his promise. He says two things here. The first part of Jesus' promise in verse 20, it's kind of a warning. It, it, it does what I like to say is it normalizes the suffering of the trial process. He tells us that hardship and trial are going to be commonplace in this life. The idea he's communicating to them here is that nobody escapes suffering. Nobody escapes hardship. So when your life gets difficult, this is not an evidence that God does not love you. It's just an evidence that this is what life is like. It can be very sweet and it can be better, very bitter at times. Everybody deals with trial and suffering. And he goes on to say that when they come, it's natural and healthy that we have time to grieve. And I love the fact that he identifies that they will endure hardship and that they are going to be given permission to grieve. This is not a negative statement here. What he's saying is is kind of neutering what maybe some of you were brought up with. Not the new church, but I would say the church of 30, 40, 50 years ago. We were kind of encouraged to not, um, we were encouraged to embrace the spiritual bravado. Like, we couldn't say everything was okay. It was an evidence that maybe we weren't right with God. But what we see here is that that's, that's not true. What Jesus says is, listen, grieving, when hardship comes and trial comes, grieving is natural. It's necessary. There is a time where you are going to grieve. He, he takes away the spiritual bravado and encourages us to, to wrestle with the human faculties that God has given us, emotions. We get to do that, and Jesus wants to walk with us through that. That's beautiful. We suffer. Jesus grieves with us. And then, if that happens, we claim the the second part of the promise. For the redeemed, he says, listen, but you need to know that your, your trial and your anguish and your grief and your suffering, they are not permanent. He says, for the redeemed, for those that I indwell, at some point, the hard edges of your pain will, will turn into pure Christian joy. They have to. That's the promise. So when it does not, we've got to figure out what we're doing wrong. We've got to sit and figure out how we're plugging up the promise of Jesus. And we see this exact same thing happening in Nehemiah, right? The pain and the hardship of giving up everything they had to follow God. Remember, the big party is thrown after people make immeasurable life sacrifices to move God's kingdom forward. They give up everything they have. They inhabit a dangerous city at the expense of a comfortable, a comfortable life. They're rebuilding Jerusalem to bring Jesus to the world. There is great pain, trial, and suffering, but yet they don't exude any of that right now. What we see is anguish that, is, that births pure joy unbridled worship. Again, the subject of our talk next week. And this is because they keep their eyes on God. Remember, the story of Nehemiah is the story of a people who were very close to God that became very far from God, who are now becoming very close to God again. 
And what we see out of this is a, is a pursuit of him, a love for him, passionate mission, devout prayer and study of the word. And here we start to see that they're, they're worshiping. They're beginning to recognize who God is through their words and their actions and even their deeds. They keep their eyes on God. Now, all of this, these two narratives, at least in my mind, they beg a serious question. We're seeing two stories of hardship and two responses to it. One loses joy, one gains joy. So in my mind, this raises a question. How can we get to the place in our lives where we're able to find joy in the midst of hardship and suffering? That's kind of the million-dollar question of the morning. And to answer this, Jesus uses the metaphor of, of childbirth. Now, childbirth is a common metaphor used throughout the Bible. <clears throat> in fact, you'll find that most analogies that deal with how we relate to each other and how we pursue God, there's a lot of kind of familial language. We are God's children, adopted sons and daughters. He is our father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Here he uses another familial analogy. This is a common language in the Bible to describe what life looks like in the kingdom on earth. And childbirth, at least here, he's, he's, he's focusing on one side of it. He's focusing on a, on a time uh, or, or an example of something that happens when a very painful time in a person's life, right, is then followed by a time filled with extreme joy. This makes a lot of sense because of what he's saying in verses 21 and 22. The analogy is, is there's a lot of pain before the baby comes, right? There's, there's tons of anguish before there is joy. Same thing is true with the disciples. There will be anguish before there is joy. And in verses 21 and 22, he says, a, a woman's time comes, and when it comes, she has this baby, and then he says, but think about this. She forgets at some point the anguish of the baby, of having the baby, because of the overwhelming joy of her child being born. That's the contrast he's making. And so I want to point out a couple of things here. I want us to kind of identify or notice what Jesus does and does not say as he uses this analogy. The first thing he clearly tells us is that uh, uh, when a woman is pregnant, her time will come to endure the hardship of birthing a child. This kind of jumps back to what I said a few minutes ago that naturally, when biology is healthily happening, right, when you are pregnant, your time eventually does come. The idea here is that it is inevitable that there will be pain to birth the baby. Obviously, what he's talking about here is hardship is inevitable. It's reinforcing the fact that everyone's time at some point is going to come in their life. This is not a a thing we should fear, but we should be prepared to to kind of embrace God's truth about grief and suffering and joy when it does. So there's there's this idea of preparing our heart for the fact that it might not be today, but at some point, hardship will follow. It will pursue us. That's what he does say. And he doesn't say, this is important, that when she has the baby, the pain instantly goes away. When he uses the word forget, he doesn't mean like, like amnesia. That's not the kind of forget he's talking about. And those of you that have children or have given birth, you know, like, as far as the physical uh, labor goes, you don't have a child and then walk on the third floor of the hospital and then walk down to the lobby to get a Starbucks coffee. You're pretty laid up for a little bit, right? There is a great toll that is taken on the body to have a child. So he's not saying you flip the joy switch. In fact, most moms have vivid memories of childbirth. And I shared this story with you a couple years ago. This is the greatest example I have of this teaching in my life, a life example uh, of something that happened with my wife and I while we were grocery shopping at Walmart. This is when my son, who is now nine, was in kindergarten. Right? At the tail end of our shopping, we had to do something. We remembered that, uh, I say we, my wife remembered, that he had this project where he had to buy a 10-pound bag of rice. And I guess they were going to take the rice and make like sackcloth babies out of it or something. But nonetheless, he needed, he needed 10 pounds of rice. And so before we left the store, we strolled over to the rice aisle. And that was a pretty uneventful thing. But what happened after that was incredibly eventful. 
because my wife, who was at the front of the court, bent over to pick up this 10-pound uh, bag of rice, and she looked over at me and became a different woman for a couple of minutes. She said to me, uh, somehow, I don't know exactly what was happening, you know, in the brain at that point, but she said, hey, this 10-pound this bag of rice, it caused her to flash back to having my son Aiden, who now, you know, is almost as big as me. But when Aiden was born, uh, he was uh, 10 pounds and .08 ounces. Now, for those of you that don't have children or have birth children, let me explain to you what this means. That means he came like out of the womb with a goatee and, uh, uh, and, and speaking in full sentences, asking for employment, looking for a job. Like he, he was like a little grown man. It was, it was amazing how, how big he was, right? That was how my son was born. That's not normal. Most babies are born, you know, six to eight pounds or so. So somehow picking up this bag flashed her back to the pain of carrying my son. And, and she had this dialogue with me. At least she was attempting to have this dialogue with me. And she was looking at the bag and she said, hey, hey, can you believe that this bag was, was almost as heavy as Aiden was uh, when, when he was born? Can you imagine carrying this around in your belly for nine months? And, uh, and I looked at her and I said, uh, no, I actually, I, I can't remember. I, I, can't, I can't do that. I don't even, can't even remotely begin to empathize with that pain. I know it was bad, but I just don't know. And then she got aggressive and she pushed the bag into my chest and said, put this, this is a true story, put this under your shirt so you'll know what, what it feels like to carry a, a 10-pound baby. And, uh, and I told her no um, because I didn't, did not want to get arrested for stealing rice at Walmart. That's what that, that's what that looks like, you know, it's, it's not okay in the common world. And, and we dialogued about this, and, and I thanked her like a lot for having our 10-pound baby because I felt like <laughs> gratitude was necessary there, and I'm glad she did because I, I love my son. And uh, after this little dialogue happened, she resumed to the normal woman that I remembered marrying, right? And, and uh, here, here's, here's the point of this, right? There is, there is a point, right? Once you think about that, what Jesus is saying, forgetting pain and having the baby, we, these things happen, right? I mean, we, we, we remember not the pain of my son, although that comes up at times. What we more love about my son is, is the memories he makes with us. We, we've almost like forgotten the pain. It comes up in instances because we've, we're so overwhelmed by the love for the kid, right? So, and this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying with childbirth, this is the analogy he uses, Jesus isn't saying that a woman ever forgets that pain or it instantly goes away once the baby is born. There's process in suffering. We've identified that. But what he is trying to show us is this much deeper, more beautiful reality of what happens when a mom has a baby. After the baby is born, at some point, the anguish required to birth the child, it begins to fade away. When you pick up the baby for the first time, when you hear the baby cry, when you're holding fingers and toes, the pain is there, right? But it begins to fade because there's a different, there's a different emotion that's coming into you. When you see your child smile and make noises, the facial expressions, that begins to drown out the sorrow of anguish. When this happens, right, the mind and the heart are no longer focused on the pain. This is what Jesus is saying. When mom births the baby, seldom is she concerned about the pain because she's now focused on the beauty of the baby. Not that the pain's gone away. It's just that she's no longer ruled by it because the joy of having the child overwhelms it. Literally, it overpowers the pain. This is what Christian joy is like. This is what Jesus is saying here. It's what we're seeing happening in Nehemiah. What he's saying is, is when, you, when you are suffering, when there is trial and anguish, if you want to claim the end of the promise, you will do so when you refocus your heart on the beauty of Jesus during hardship. So if you want to have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, if you want to worship God well, like the people in Nehemiah do, when things are hard, then you've got to discipline your heart to let the promises of God, his story in Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us, overwhelm the hardship. There is a scale in life. One side is anguish. The other side is the grace of Christ. And we have got to ask God in his power to heavy the side where Jesus is. 
That's what he's saying here. And here's what I mean by, by the gospel story of Jesus. Here are some of the things you can tell yourself and ask God to remind you of when hardship does come. Jesus comes to the world, right? He, he declares his love for us. He leaves heaven to love us. He leaves heaven to live for us. He leaves heaven to die for us. He breaks into history in our world to declare that God has amazingly good plans for every single human's life and that his good plans, no matter how we feel, are never on hold for us. This is the beauty of the kingdom and suffering. Even the pain God can redeem for good. God's good plans for our lives are never on hold. Not during trials, not even during the times when we feel he is absent in our life. That is not true. There is another promise. He will never leave or forsake us. When we feel that way, we need to identify that as the lie because God is always there. And he promises that in our pain, although it seeks to break us, he will find and give us purpose through it. It's not for nothing. To give you a case in point, I've said this before because it's the greatest example we have of this purpose in the pain. Look at what Jesus, look at what happens with the cross, right? This is the greatest example of God essentially practicing what he preaches. Jesus endures the hardship of the cross for us. The cross is man's instrument of death. It becomes the tool, right? It's meant for pain and suffering. But God takes the worst element of humanity and redeems it for the good of the kingdom. It is through the cross, the instrument of death in the Roman army, that he shows the world grace, joy, and life. There was purpose in the pain. So listen to me. If God can bring the redemption of all of humanity out of the cross, right, out of the brutal hardship and suffering that Jesus suffers, if he can do that, we have to ask ourselves a hard question if we're stuck in the grief. Why do we not believe he can turn our current grief into joy? If he could take the worst that humanity could throw at him and turn it into joy, why do we believe that he cannot deal with the challenges or the hardships we're facing now? He wants to make the sun rise in your life. The people in Nehemiah experienced it. Their hardship turned to joy. Jesus' disciples will experience it. The promise he makes them, the first thing they do when they realize, oh, he's alive, he's resurrected. We'll get to that in a second. They, they're joyful. That's what the Bible literally says. The promise came true. They recognized Jesus was going to a different place, but he was actually not leaving them. Nehemiah's people experienced it. The disciples will experience it in the text. And if you want to experience it, and I hope you do, you have to learn to deeply trust in the promise that God tells you to not look towards the shifting nature of your life circumstances for joy. They can supplement joy, but they cannot be the root of it. Rather, he asks you to dwell in the permanence of his love and presence as you endure life circumstances, especially when they are difficult. I'm going to share with you a verse that means a lot to me. There are a few of them. Psalm 84, 1 and 2, and 10 through 12 in the section of Psalm 84. I couldn't read the whole thing, but I'd encourage you to read all of Psalm 84 later today. The psalmist is, is reminding us of this truth. When he's speaking to God, he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns. It even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The root of joy, the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. For those who love and pursue him, Lord Almighty, blessed are those who trust in you. I want to, want to pause you. That is definitely worth an amen. Or seven. <laughs> Gotta wake up, church. Come on. <clears throat> I want to leave you with a meditation point here before we look at the second idea I want to share with you. Right now, if there is a lack of joy in your life or you are deep friends with a person who is without joy, whether this is you or a friend, 
I would encourage you or your friend to stop asking for God to take the pain away or to stop asking for him to give you more joy. There's a theological inconsistency there. The better question, I believe, is asking God for some clarity on what is going on in your life. You're plugging joy up. It's already in you. That's what Jesus says. To be his means you are given an eternal fountain of joy. So when it's not overflowing, we have damned it up somehow. That's the question we need to ask God. That's what needs to be removed. And God loves you enough to lead you to the point where he will do that for you. He will show you what that is. It's up to us to decide whether or not we take him at his word and experience it. That's what joy is. It's a promise. It's not something we have to fabricate. And it informs every area of life, how we love him, how we love our neighbor, and how we serve the causes of the kingdom where God places us. Now, this is good stuff. We could pretty much end the sermon here, but you know my style. We won't. That promise gets even better. We're going to layer another grace on a grace. Because the next thing we see in John is it's another truth. It's almost like reinforcing the truth that he just said. The second thing Jesus tells us here about joy is that the joy Jesus promises, the joy he promises you can't be taken away by any circumstance or person. And the key here is unless you let them. That's kind of what we sang about with the foxes. We can permit the foxes to steal our joy, but we can also deny them that reality. That's what we just sang in worship. That's what Jesus is saying here. John 16, 22, he says, so with you, after he promises that grief will turn into joy, so with you, he says, now is your time of grief. This is your season to suffer, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. No one can do that, he says. And Jesus says this because he knows a Christian's joy is based on something far greater than people or earthly circumstances. In a rather cryptic way, remember, we know the whole story, but the disciples do not. We're not afraid of of losing Jesus because we know he's with us forever. But they don't know this yet. They haven't experienced or tasted this honey. So in a rather cryptic way, what's happening is as, as they're recognizing Jesus is about to be taken from them and crucified and their lives are going to get very hard, he says, listen, my joy is based on you seeing me again, which we know is the power of his, in the text anyways, his soon-to-happen resurrection. That's what he's telling his disciples. Right before the crucifixion, he says, I'm going to see you again. And when I do, you're going to rejoice. And it's in this verse that Jesus connects joy to the power of his resurrection. These two things are inseparable. If you want to know why you can have joy in the worst of situations, it's because Jesus came out of the grave. Let me explain. When he came out of the grave, we know lots of things happen. But one of the greatest truths of what the resurrection promises us is that he proves that, that life and death, right? These are end caps to the human life. We are born, we just talked about that, and we die. They are the, the monumental end caps of humanity. They bow to Jesus. And everything in the middle of those two end caps, they bow to Jesus. So Jesus is the Lord of birth. He is the Lord of life, and he has conquered death. The resurrection shows us that, that there's nothing he's not in control of. There's nothing that he hasn't endured himself. And what he says to us here is, listen, that the, the power of my resurrection, it, it can overcome any circumstance in life. No issue in life or death has the ability to keep me down. And when you follow me, my resurrection power is in you. We're going to see this in a second in 2 Corinthians. That same power to overcome is in us. So our, our ability to persevere and to power through problems and trials is not our own. It's, it's the evidence of Jesus in us. That's why he says, no one can take this joy from you. Why? Because I said so. Because I'm Jesus. And I said, no one takes your joy unless you let them. So the question is, why do we, why do we seed it? Why do we let the foxes into the vineyard? Because of the resurrection, right, Jesus proves a lot of things to us. But the biggest is that he's the Lord of everything. And so what that means is you can face any uncertainty, any trial, any hardship with the certainty of knowing that that nothing is ever going to interrupt God's good plan for your life. The origin of the gospel story, that has great plans for you. And nothing can interrupt them, even when life goes sour. 
Nothing in this world has the power to take Jesus' joy away from you unless you let it. And here's how we let it. We would be amiss to not talk about this. The way we usually let something rob us of our joy is going gonna, is gonna to piggyback to what we just said. It's when we start to seek our ultimate joy, no longer from Jesus, but from the circumstances of life. And here's how we'll wrap up. I want to give you some examples of this. Here's what this looks like. Think about this in Nehemiah, right? We see that they endure the hardship of the move because they're fixated on the grace of God. They have found joy in serving God. That's a very different story if they had their ultimate joy in their comfortable suburban residences. Now life is not good anymore. If what they loved most was their comfort, then when God asked them to move to a place that discomforted them for the sake of his kingdom, the joy's gone. So we see the evidence of a people who no matter what they were migrating towards in life, they had their eyes fixed on God and they are joyful because of it. In our lives, it's when we adopt these kinds of sayings, right? It's when when life is kind of smooth and things are good, stable, we are good. The byproduct of stability is we are stable. But the other side of this coin is that when things get unstable, we're not stable. We have the, uh, hey, life is not so good right now philosophy, and so that means my, my joy is gone. And this is how a lot of us live, sometimes in peak seasons. We're kind of like an unstable bomb, one circumstantial nudge away from happiness or sorrow. We live on this emotional edge. We're literally one compliment away from being happy or one critique, one, one, one negative complaint away from melting down. That's an evidence that we're finding joy in things that we should not derive our ultimate joy from. So if this sounds like you, or you have these kinds of emotional rhythms, it very well can be an indication that you're seeking joy from uh, shifting circumstances, not Jesus. And the the real deceitful part of this is that that can work for a while. Like, you really can be happy for a season like this, when the season is good. Maybe even for years, right? But it can't last forever. Because remember, when her time comes, there's going to come a time when the suffering comes. And if you derive your joy from stability, then when you lose stability, you will lose your joy. You've left the gate open for the foxes. And, I mean, just logically speaking, nobody in their right mind should want to trade that kind of hit or miss joy that we have no control over for an unchanging, enduring, eternal joy that Jesus absolutely has control over. Yeah, we often do. We seed the joy. You know how this goes? Think about it. Think about your life in perspective. You have a great day when you get that raise. You have a great day when you get a good performance review at work. You have a great day if you're on, you're on the men and you're losing weight. You have a great day when everybody recognizes that. When people say, hey... Pastor, your sermon was great today. You're buying somebody lunch. You're feeling good about it, right? Things are great. When your life is going well, things are great. All of these are good things. They can be great encouragements for our souls. We should be thankful for them. But they become treacherous friends when we seek and derive our ultimate joy in them because every day isn't like those days. Think about this again. There are days, right? Think of your vocation. You don't get raises or promotions every day. Sometimes you might even get passed up for those things. That's when the treachery of that idol deceives you. It's when it ruins you. There are days when we try our hardest, but we underperform in our tasks. In the workplace, with our wives and our families, with our kids. There are days when we, don't, we, we miss the mark. It just straight up happens. There are days and weeks and years when we're putting the weight on. When our love life isn't great. When our marriage is really troubled. When our, our, the person we're dating kicks us to the curb. Where our kids are driving us crazy. Where we don't know what to do, right? There are days when you have bills to pay and your checking account does not agree with what you have to pay. There's an incongruency in what you owe and what you have. Life is like that sometimes. And living on that circumstantial roller coaster, it'll ruin you. Your life is in tow to the elements, you might say. And God knows this because he made us. And that's why he gave the disciples this promise in their hour of need. He said, the seas are about to rock, but I'm going to give you something to be stable in during them, me. 
And what's beautiful about the promises, what we see in the Old Testament, what we, what we hear about with Jesus and his disciples, <clears throat> that same promise is our promise when the trials come. It wasn't just Nehemiah's people and his disciples. It's our promise because Jesus' promises are eternal. And Jesus' promise simply says this. He promises that our days, uh, he says our joy can't be lost when we have bad days, nor can it be derived from good days. You can live this way, but we should not. Because in Jesus, our life is no longer built on that foundation of shifting external circumstances. So no matter what comes our way, we can meet it head on because we face it with the power of his resurrection. And every circumstance, whether it be birth, life, or death, bows to him. And for many of us, this, this is a, a big tell with people. Sometimes this is what leads people to want to, to explore Jesus. They have lived like this. They have kind of found or pursued joy. Maybe they didn't have these, these technical terms, but circumstantial living is what defined them. And what it did is it, it surfaced a real deficiency in their gods, the lowercase g kind, right? They thought that could provide for them, make them happy. But as soon as life got unstable, so did they. And so what happens is, if we're on mission and we're sensing the needs of people around us, God places you next to people that need to hear this. Then that person, because of our faithfulness to share who Christ is, they start to hear about this almost too good to be true story of Jesus. They start hearing that, listen, in Jesus, right, to be a Christian doesn't mean that, that Jesus exempts you from hardship. It doesn't, there's no promise old or new where God says to us, I will make sure you do not suffer or have hardship. That's nowhere to be found. That's not the root of his promise. The promise is that it's not to make life easy. In fact, sometimes our, our causes for the kingdom make life very hard. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, listen, when he gets hard, you don't have to be afraid. And even if things are good, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry about what's coming down the road because your ultimate worth, your value, your life, your stability, your security, it's not dependent on the sea. It's dependent on me. Your life is now fixed in the unchanging, never-ending, overflowing fountain of Christ's love and, love and grace. This is a love that, that has secured our, it secured our destiny. He secured his love for us on the cross. He validated it for us through the resurrection. And it is living in every single believer right now because of the presence of his Holy Spirit. That's beautiful. And I want you to listen to how Paul describes this reality in his life while he's dealing with his own set of hardships. This is a guy who did amazing things for the kingdom, and he paid for it. He lived a life of suffering because of his fidelity to Jesus. Yet we see in him the same kind of joy we see in the Old Testament people of God in Nehemiah. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. And I want you to listen to the back end of this, especially verse 10. I want you to hear the resurrection language so you don't think I'm making this stuff up. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it is not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. All things Paul personally dealt with. And then he says this. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, the reminder of what he did on the cross, the reality that he lives in us, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It is the death that leads to our life. It is the death that leads to our security. And that's what we have to remember during times of hardship. This. And that joyful, persevering gospel confidence that we see in Paul and in the personal heroes of our faith, we see it in Nehemiah 12. It stems from what we're reading about there. What Jesus is saying in John 16. You might consider it a, a more refined promise of what we're observing in Nehemiah. It's what happens when people stop trusting in the circumstances of this world 
for their source of joy, and they anchor their hearts in God their Father. And so in light of these truths, I'll leave you with a couple of questions this morning before we move into response time. These questions have profound implications, so wrestle with them this week. Are you living in the power of Jesus' promised joy? Or have you let the thieves and the foxes in to steal it? If today your season is grief, know that that's okay. Jesus is here to deal with that with you, to wrestle with that with you. There are people in this room and in this church that will, that will wrestle with that with you. There's no bravado here. If where you are right now is grief, begin asking yourself, how do I get to, the, to, to experience the promise? Make sure you're not lingering in the grief and you've not permitted a thief to steal your joy. Because you only have two options when it comes to this question. You can look to find your joy in Jesus or you can hope it works out with the other things that you're looking to right now. And we all know where that road is going. We've just explained it. No, we're good. Ask yourself this. Are you a Christian? Maybe, maybe this is something you know, right? Are you a Christian surrounded by the promises of Jesus, but you're not experiencing them? That old analogy we use from Jonathan Edwards. You have heard about the honey, but you cannot taste it when it comes to suffering and joy. Maybe you've read them. You know them. You're studying them in your community groups. You're hearing them all the time but you've yet to believe them deeply enough to experience the peace, the rest, and the joy that Jesus promises you through them. You can't figure out what the good plans for your life are in the kingdom because you're buried in the grief. If this is you, it's time to ask yourself why this is the case. And as we say here, maybe it's time to doubt some of the doubt. Maybe it's time to begin praying for the Holy Spirit to turn the eyes of your heart away from the circumstance and to your God in heaven, away from the trials and towards the one who promises to see you through the trials. Ask to see the glory of God. Ask to serve God. Ask to be close to him because it will help the trials of life not to go away, but to fade away. It's time to ask God what has danned up the well of joy that he's put in your heart. And maybe you're here in a third category today. You don't believe anything about Jesus. Or maybe you're believing some things about Jesus, but you've got a lot of questions. You're looking and exploring. You're interested, but not convinced. To you, Jesus has a different question. What is it you're waiting for? Right now, why, what is keeping you from letting the beauty of Jesus compel you to love him? What is, what is it about the love of Jesus that sours you from not wanting to experience it? What is keeping you from letting his love overwhelm your heart? Why can't you see Jesus for who he is? That's a question that's worth asking. Maybe today is the day to trust and believe and to pursue what it means to become a disciple like the ones we have read about today. And as we close this morning, I want to ask you guys to ask yourself, when it comes to the promises, the promise of Jesus' joy, what is Jesus saying to you this morning, and what do you intend to do about it when you leave this place today? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you again for the, one of the, the greatest things of the book of Nehemiah. It's so centered on you, yet it gives us so much information, head, heart, and mind, about what, what it's like to be a human, to be a man or a woman. We see victory and failure. We see success and struggle. We see hardship and joy. These are the rhythms of our life. And so we thank you, God, that, that you show us time and time again, you're not looking for perfection in the people you want to use. You're looking for faithfulness. And so, Lord, may that be the battle cry of our hearts today. May we observe, God, the, the fallen and broken disciples in John 16 who have missed the boat entirely, God. It wasn't their perfection that you set them apart for. It was their desire to want to know and to love you more deeply. That's why we can see in two situations where people are missing who you are, your grace restores them to who you are, and you begin to use them for great and mighty things. And we pray, God, that no matter how we have entered this place, no matter where our physical, emotional, or spiritual self-esteem is today, I pray, Lord, that you would lift it to the heavens and that we would recognize beyond rival that you are our God, we are your children, and you have promised us an unrivaled, unassailable love, peace, hope, 
hope and joy. May that be the way we leave this place today. May that be the words etched on our hearts as we worship you for the rest of this time we have during the week in our communities and serve your name, represent the name of your son Jesus in the places, God, that you have planted us. We pray now you'd bless this time of response and this, this conversation we have with you over these next meetings. May you speak mightily to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and may we listen to your voice. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this morning. Amen.